love, kindness, human connection. These are some of the things we talk about on the Danny Painter Show. It's a thing. This show is intended for a more mature audience. We might sometimes say bad words. So on a Zoom with me, as you can see, is a woman in politics who went from fashion to fighting for the country. And she could be my my new mayor, but we're gonna we're gonna see about that. But I wanna know about everything about her because women in politics fascinate me. It's a man's world, it's a cutthroat world. I only know what I see on Netflix. And so she is gonna teach us about South African politics from a woman's perspective. The incredible Rafael Enseke. I hope I said your surname correctly. <laughs> Yes, you did. Thank you so much, Danny. Okay, so you are obviously with the DA, you're in politics, you've been in politics for a while, but you came from a world of fashion into the world of politics where you have to wear golf shirts and jeans and um, fight for us. But talk to me a little bit about, okay, first things first, as our new mayor, how will I address you? Well, at the moment, I'm mayoral candidate. Okay. Because I, I, it takes voters to make me the mayor. Okay. And then once in office, it will be executive mayor. Okay. That okay. So for now, mayoral candidate, Rafael Nsenga. Correct. And um, how yes. long? How long is are you going to be mayoral candidate before you you take the crown? Well, until the elections. So when the elections are announced and the DA wins Ekuruleni, then I become the mayor of Ekuruleni. Yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, I feel like you have inside info as to when those might be because we're hearing conflicting things at the moment. Maybe soon, maybe not well, soon. Well, I think the date that we're sort of looking at, they said between the 27th and the 1st. So it's always on a Wednesday. The elections are normally always on a Wednesday. So those are the two dates we're working towards. But more than likely, the 1st of November. Okay. What Not long to go. Seven weeks. <laughs> seven weeks. Seven weeks of no sleep and lots of caffeine for you and not seeing your family. It's going to be Absolutely. It's going to be a big seven weeks. Okay. But tell me a little bit about you because we don't all I don't think politicians don't grow up wanting to be politicians. I think when we're little we want to grow up and be lawyers and doctors and and actors and and all of those things. How what was your childhood like? How did that make you into you? I'm actually a weird breed because my mother's a medical doctor who's okay. a double qualified nurse before she became a doctor. Wow. My dad is an agricultural economist. So if you can talk about a girl who deviated from family norms, that's me. Wow. So I literally was at Pretoria Girls High. And when I finished matric, I had no clue what I wanted to do. My mom had applied everywhere in the world for me to be a doctor. <laughs> and even promised to buy me a car when I got to third year. In. And um, I went um, and decided that actually I'm going to go to UCT because that was the furthest away from home growing up in Pretoria. <laughs> and so by the time I got to university, I, I started with a BA, but I graduated in a BA in political philosophy. So at that time, I thought I'd be a political analyst. Then I thought I need to beef up this qualification because political philosophy is more academia than anything else in this country. And I started doing some work over the holidays. I spent some time with my brother who was already like in marketing. And then I studied marketing. I did a postgraduate diploma in marketing management. If you can go extreme ends wow. um, of different careers. And from that career, I then decided, actually I enjoyed marketing. But I'd always been active in student politics. So unlike other black people, if I can say it, I did not want to join SASCO, which is the baby, um, the student party, the student organization for ANC. I went to South African Liberal Students Association in 1995. So that's where my political career actually started at the eight, when I attended 18 at university and at Cape UCT. And then from there, obviously, I kind of then worked in marketing spaces, 
I had I worked in Foshimi Group, which is where you say the fashion comes in. I was a trainee buyer for men's chains and rings. <laughs> but let me tell you, there's no experience wasted right now because now when I talk about stock management and it's a big thing for me with why we've got power outages and stock outages in terms of the sub the the, the stores where they get bulbs and stuff. I can apply that learning. And then from there, I went to work for Cape Span. A lot of people remember the Outspan Oranges. I was the brand manager for Outspan. I did the corporate identity for the merger of Outspan and Cape, which became Cape Span, developing the new look and feel for the company. Wow. I was then headhunted by South African Airways. And I became a CI manager for SAA, but later on a full-fledged brand manager for them. I had my son in 2004 and I thought, I can't keep flying all over the world at short notice and leave a newborn baby. Yes, you can. (laughs) Other people do it, but I think I was a first time mom. I really wanted to be a mom fully. I wanted to at least leave the child during the day, but be home by night, you know? And so I went to join APSA as a brand manager. And in that time, we won best company to work for because I was doing internal marketing, which was marketing <laughs> to staff. The 38,000 people that worked for APSA at that time from staff in branches, if you can think how many, the footprint of APSA all over the country. We even had um, the choir festival, which I initiated to bring build team morale. And then from there, I went on to join South African Broadcasting Corporation as a marketing manager. Wow. So I was a corporate marketing manager for SABC. And my job was to look out for opportunities for all the sub-brands from SABC 1, SABC 2, 3, all the radio stations. They had 18 radio stations at that time, but I was sitting at a corporate level and doing all the CI and marketing of SABC holistically. And then somehow in that space, I started thinking, I'm earning this big fat salary, but I'm not liking my work. I'm not feeling this job. I needed something that felt like I was contributing to South Africa because I had this child and I didn't like what I was seeing around me in terms of my neighborhood, the schools that had that I had make, convinced me to buy my house in Kempton. I was worried about the deterioration And in that time, you know when they say karma, when you put it out there, it finds you? I then found myself um, um, as a uh, um, DA looking for a regional manager in in a local community newspaper. And I thought, yes, of course, I would gravitate to the DA because I've been a member of the DA since 2001, but not very active. I was only active in student politics. And so I applied for this job. They were like, oh my gosh, where have you been? A liberal in South Africa. And so um, I went for eight interviews in one day. Oh my God. I li- Well, the gist of it was basically for the regional manager position, I was told I'm overqualified. And then they, they literally created a portfolio to suit my expertise. So I looked after... 150 wards of the DA in black communities to build DA. Wow. Wow. So, and I, they were first of all like, don't you want to come to Cape Town? I said, no, I've just come back from Cape Town. <laughs> I was at UCT and I worked for Foshindi Group and Cape Stat. I'm here because my mom needs me because my mom had been ill. So that made me come back to Gauteng. And in that time, they said to me, we can't lose you. And they said, well, you live in Kempton, which is perfect, because what we need you to do is keep hopping on airplanes going all over the country, building DA in villages and townships all over, because you understand how to translate the DA messages into vernacular so that people can understand what the DA message is about. And I did that for the Democratic Alliance, and I found it amazing. And sometimes I would drive around with a baby on my back in the, in villages around the country. And other times I would be like from Kunu where Nelson Mandela comes to from, to Venda, which is like borders Messina, the border of Zim. 
literally building the democratic alliance. In 2011, um, I think I was asked to be the mayoral candidate for the democratic alliance. At that time, I, I stood for the position, but and honestly, the lady who stood against me had been far more in politics, and I thought it was the best loss of my life because she had political experience and I still needed to build myself up a little bit. So from that, there was a ward in Benoni, Ward 24, which has been basically chiefly Tuli, N12 informal settlement, Cloverdine, the Rhine Parks, Crystal Park, right up to Benoni small farms. Mm -hmm. They needed somebody who can literally walk from informal settlement into a boardroom because you've got CEOs living in that area, yeah. you've got informal settlements, yeah. and they were like, Rufilwe, you are that person. <laughs> Having been headhunted to join, to apply to be a mayoral candidate, they literally said, if you don't take this ward, the DA is going to lose it. And so I put, for six weeks, I was still running as the staff member, but I had to run a campaign in that ward, build up my profile so the residents get to know who I am, as a candidate for the war, as a ward candidate, and then get into that ward. We literally got that ward by 59 votes. Wow. And so from that point, I became a ward councillor for Ekuruleni, looking after Binoni, people of Binoni. And I worked in that ward and, um, I was also the shadow MMC for health and social development. So I'm highly passionate about health issues, maybe because my mom's a doctor that little bit rubbed out on me, but I'm passionate about social issues as well. So that's kind of how I've kind of gotten into politics. And then 2014, I was told, you know what? You have a lot of intellectual ability. Why don't you consider going for higher office in terms of becoming an MPL, which is a member of the provincial legislature? Yeah. And so I applied and I was successful. I was in the top 10 in, in Gauteng because we rank our lists. So I went to serve in Gauteng Provincial Legislature, which I'm still serving today. And because I'd been in social development, I again was told you're going to carry on because you're clearly very passionate about social issues in the province. And now I went from being a ward councillor to being a shadow MMC for social development in the whole of Gauteng. 2016, when we had the elections, again, I was asked, don't you want to be a mayoral candidate? And I said, I'm not ready. This time I didn't even put my name down. I just <laughs> said, I'm not ready. I still feel I need to build myself up politically and in other ways. But when 2021 came, I was literally asked by, I mean, I'm also a federal leader of the party now. <laughs> because <laughs> there's so much I wear so many hats I've been in the leadership from 2014 2019 and I was re-elected three times I'm the deputy federal chair so just in a nutshell now my position in the democratic alliance if John Steenhazen is not available maybe it's he's you. traveling Dr. Ivan Mayer is the acting leader if Dr. Ivan Mayer is not there I'm the acting leader of the democratic alliance did you like responsibility? Hey, I'm sitting listening to you and I'm like, you love a good responsibility. I'm one of the, I'm one of our age group that are like, I would, I want none of the responsibility. Someone else will look after me. You are that one that goes, me, I am the one. And I'm sitting here and I have such anxiety for all the hats that you wear. Uh, we're going to unpack them, but wow. I think I'm passionate. So it's easy to do something when you're passionate about it. And the one thing I, I'll tell anybody, Danny, is that politics is the most unthanked. People don't thank you for what you do. But what thanks me is where I go into communities and maybe there was a shack fire and I'm able to wrestle up church groups and get some blankets in there and assist people get their IDs. They might not say thank you, but just knowing that I've put a smile on their beds or even put them in a community hall for the night through working with the municipality. That's what thanks me. Mm. Because I always say to people, if you died tomorrow, 
what do you want people to remember you as? What would you like to be put on your tombstone? So when I entered this race as a mayoral candidate, I've got multiple things I want on my tombstone. When you think of black people in power in, in across the continent, generally we think of corruption. One of my key dreams is to be, when they when people look at Ekuruleni, it must be like, oh my gosh, Cape Town was amazing, but Rafila took over Ekuruleni, it was better than Cape Town. I want that. And I want to be that person that people look up and say, Rafila epitomizes black excellence on the continent. That's the legacy I want to leave for my boys mm. and the world at large. That I want people to start saying, yes, we can put black people into positions of power and they will improve the lives of ordinary South Africans. Because they're not going to they're not going to loot the state coffers. I'm actually quite happy. I'm one of those people who I've got my own house. I live in Camden. I've got my house. Yes, it's not fully paid off, but I'm affording it comfortably. I don't feel the need to have sleepless nights because I've stolen a million rand from somebody because God, I love my sleep, Danny. Mm. But I really want to leave my children with a country that they can inherit and be proud of and said, this is the country my mom helped building. Yeah. My boys are 17, 11 and 8. And I and we know they say it takes a village to raise a, to raise yep. a child. I want other little black girls to also say, if Rafila can do it, I can also get there. Yes. And I want the country to look at me and say, Rafila and Danny can be best friends. She didn't want to just have a black friends because I really believe in the spirit of non-racialism. I agree. If your heart says, I love Danny, so be it. Yeah. Because the heart chooses. I agree with you. I love this. I'm all about energy. Everyone calls me a hippie all the time, but I think you and I need, I live in Brackpan, so I'm ready for you. Um, I'd like you, no for you problem. to, I'd like for you to make this Cape little Cape Town or better than little Cape Town. But no, I told the people from, I, I told Jordan Hill Ludus, the mayoral candidate of Cape Town. I said, I'm going to give you a run for your money. I'm mm. ready. I've got my techies on. I'm the person <laughs> who literally, like I said to you, Danny, Throw me in an informal settlement. I'm the girl who's going to move from an informal settlement into a boti, a gate, and high-end estate. Gates and I want people at all those levels and in between to mm. be able to feel like I represent them. Okay. I can go into an informal settlement and sit on a crate and eat with them. I don't have an issue. I can also have a seven-course dinner with um, fork and a knife, although I'm left-handed, so I'll move your knives to my left hand. <laughs> and eat the seven course dinner. I don't even feel, fl I don't flinch in any of those spaces. I'm yeah. at home in all of them. So my motto is also to people of Ikuruleni, your lived experiences and disappointments with service delivery is my lived experience because I'm a resident here. When you say there's no water, um, there's, wa there's water outages, I feel it. First hand, mm. I'm a mom who lives here. When you say power outages, my children are home, are online schooling. You can imagine what that does to a school for them. Yeah. When you say that you took out your really bean because the dustbin was supposed to go out on a Tuesday, and then in the end of the day, you brought it back in. I know, I live here. And then you tried it the next day and then the next day again. And then maybe on a Saturday or a Sunday, you're like, you're lying in bed with your coffee and you're like, why to now? And then you run outside in your pajamas. And then you're going to ride with a wheelie <laughs> Okay. That's me. And I'm the neighbor who also, we've got wheelie beans that get stolen. So after the truck goes in the odd hours of the morning, I take everybody's wheelie bean <laughs> into my yard so that they don't get stolen. I love you. I love you. I love and you. my neighbors will be like, Raf, can you open the gate? I'm here from work. And I'll be like, what house number? Number 18. And I'll take number 18 out <laughs> or whatever the case may be. I wish I lived in your streets. I feel like we would be <laughs> such good friends. I would bring you so many, so much bildung, so many cookies. I would visit you all the time when you are home. Okay, but just going back to some of the things that you said, because you are incredibly wise. And I feel like your lived experience has been so varied and so colorful and so full that there 
the things that you're saying to me are resonating with me. And one of the things that you, you said was that it was the best loss of your life. And I want to unpack this a little bit because especially now with the global pandemic, people are losing a lot. People are losing jobs. People are losing houses. People are losing opportunities. There are no opportunities for people. And this on top of our already struggling country and economy and jobs and everything that goes on on top of being a human a parent a mom a sister a brother uh, you know just just living day to day people are experiencing a lot of loss and i think you can see it because you're seeing people face to face as you tour i'm seeing a lot of people really feeling that loss and that loss is becoming part of their internal narrative, right? And yeah. then it goes from loss to I'm not worthy. Now you looked at losses and you look at them as wins, essentially. How do you do that mind switch so that maybe we can also steal some of that light that you have? You know, it's such a difficult space to navigate I'll give you an example. Um, I've seen people passing away from COVID. And and I'm going to be honest, it, watching it on TV and radio and people talking about it, they were like statistics. Yeah. I know they're human beings, but they're statistics. They're removed, yeah. Very far removed. Yeah. Until in July, a colleague of mine, Lebo More, who sits next to me in the provincial parliament, passed away. It stopped being a statistic. Mm. It hit home for me. And um, we buried Lebo in July. And post Lebo's funeral, I got COVID. I had the most mildest symptoms ever. But the fact that I went to Empath, I did a test, the results came back saying I'm COVID positive. And I've just buried my best friend at work it hit home that COVID is real we're talking 18 months into COVID and I'm waking up yes I've been masking and sanitizing and all that but the hitting home of the loss that people are experiencing mm. came with losing my colleague when I remembered thinking one day parliament will normalize and I'll go back into that space and I will have Lebo used to sweat a lot walking from the parking and I always carried a hanky for him in my handbag because he'd always be like, Ref, have you got a tissue? Ref, have you got a tissue? And I will have to sit next to that chair and I'll probably pack a hanky because I'm not used to not having Lebo next to me. Yeah. And even if somebody sits next to him, to me, tomorrow, because we probably have to redeploy a new MPL into the legislature, it's never going to be the same. Mm. Every time I see a car like his, I feel like crying again. So for me, while painfully I've lost Lebu, let me give you some personal thing. I, I said to Lebu's mom, Mommy, we never had a relationship before you lost your son. But you've gained a daughter in me. I phone her every week to check up on how she's doing. And Lebo's sister is in China teaching English. She was close to her brother. I try and phone her every week so she doesn't feel the loss of her brother. So death has touched me in a different way. I've actually found myself incredibly numb to the number of people we're losing through death. Because mm. you read about it, hear about it, almost on a daily basis, somebody has passed on from this. And the only thing that I've learned when I say loss is sometimes good for me is I don't just sympathize now. Because of having had that close loss to me, I'm better able to empathize with people losing friends, loved ones, teachers, any anybody close to them. Yeah. But also in, in so, your in your loss, sorry to interrupt you, Flora, in your loss, you yeah. gained a whole new family. You gained, exactly. like you said, a mom and a sister and and yeah. a new village for your children. 
I've actually told Lebo's mom in summer I'm bringing the boys over to the house to come and swim. So she also is not completely alone. Yeah. And I do have my biological mom, but I've gained another mother. And mm. if you know, people think if you love more people, the love dwindles. No, Gross. the more you have to love, the more love you have. Yeah. And that's the message I want people to have. And to start looking at neighbors as family. You know, with this uh, COVID, I would speak with Uncle Vim across the fence in our masks, but I realized we needed to do that. So he's not alone because his son can't visit because Uncle Vim's a bit elderly. So suddenly we're becoming closer as neighbors as well. I think that that's, that's what COVID's done, right? It's, t- it's torn us apart completely. Our communities have been torn apart. Everything has been torn apart, but it's made us refocus on the things that are immediate. So our neighbors, our, our, the people in our immediate world, and then also maybe curating that a bit more to say, I want this space to be safe and it must be good for my children, for me, for my emotional well-being, but also for my health because... There are people who are denying it. There are people who are not masking up and you want to really curate that. So I agree with you 100%. And I love, I love that you're chatting to Um Vim over the wall, shame. Finding it, it's so important that we become more human. And that's the lesson that COVID has brought for us. That humility. And also, I think if I take it into a different space, And I'm talking from a point of privilege because not everybody has the privilege that I have. Yes, for a long time, I've already installed, um, when they put fiber in my neighborhood, I put unkept Wi-Fi. Last year, I started enrolling my kids on an online school. Yes, they went back to school, but this year I gambled. I said, maybe let's go completely online because I don't know what this COVID weather you'll be because they were going to school one week on, one week off, one week on, one week off. And I'm a single mom. The days, the weeks they were off, I had to teach. And I was like, I'm not geared up for this. At least let's try this online schooling between eight and two. They're in a Zoom classroom. And so I enrolled them. But you know what it has taught me out of this tragedy? Online schooling is not a bad thing. Maybe government must even consider how they can, you know, amplify education. Yeah. by encouraging online schooling. And I thought they had a good plan, but they just never implemented it fully. Mm. I'll give you an example. I went to chair the the election panel, like the interview panel for Etiquini, which is Durban. And at the time, I didn't have a housekeeper. I took my boys with me. We flew Mango because that's what I can afford. Remember, I need to sleep. I live within a budget. <laughs> And I took the boys. Yes, I had to take three laptops with me and um, <laughs> their school bags and stuff in terms of book exercise books. Wow. My laptop, the two boys, and and then everybody carries their own clothes. And so I had laptops and my own clothes as well. And we went up and we stayed at a friend's guest house. But listen to what I learned. I can literally take my kids anywhere and they can study from wherever I am in the world yeah. now. Yeah. So out of this tragedy, there's new ways of living. There's new ways, new things that I have learned. And I'm thinking, imagine if we had proper um, access to Wi-Fi everywhere in Ekuruleni. Mm. What that would, what that, what would that would, the doors that would be opened. Yeah. I sometimes sit watching TikTok and whatever and looking at exploring online businesses because I want other income streams. Yeah. legit income streams not from stealing from people yeah so imagine if other people who are unemployed had access to wi-fi because they've already got a smartphone you can actually start a business and tomorrow somebody can make a hundred dollars on yes. tiktok and not wait for government to create jobs for 350 but the infrastructure yeah. has allowed that to happen I really enjoy the way that you think, Rafila. I, I I really thoroughly enjoy the way that you think. And I love the way that you, I think you're one of the only politicians that I've ever met that brings in things like TikTok and online learning and looks at it as as a, as a, as a, for a blanket, right? For everyone, not just for yeah. people with privilege, people with uncapped No, not the elite. For everyone. It must be open for everyone. Because as you said, 
imagine the opportunities that people would have who are looking for an extra income like you and I, if it was open to everyone, the ideas that would come from this country, the, the job opportunities that it would open up to all of us as, as work from home as a, I mean, someone here could create the next uh, Fiverr, the next, the next, whatever Amazon. it is. Yes, yeah. Amazon, whatever it is. And we could all be richer for it. But I do want to get into a little bit of a darker conversation because uh, I wanted to meet you. I wanted to. I wanted all of us to meet you. I wanted to get to know you as a human because I think we forget that behind the, the wall of politics, our politicians are also human <laughs> with human emotions and families and sons and school and living in a budget and getting the wheelie bins. I, I think that we forget that. And I love that you've reminded us. But you are still a politician at heart. And you are still a woman who fights for the women and the children of this country. And your campaign manager, Warren Gwilt, sent me an article and he was like, this is something that you are very, very much fighting at this point. And I have got to tell you, I have been avoiding the news because it's bad for my mental health. But when I read the article that he sent me about the number of teenage pregnancies within the pandemic, within the lockdown, it absolutely destroyed me because I know that a lot of these weren't just because we were sneaking out of the house and having fun with our boyfriends. A lot of these were traumatic and violent experiences. And I, I really want to talk to you about this because this is something that I don't think, I didn't know about it. My mom didn't know about it. So talk to me about this. What is the st statistic? What is happening in, in, this, in this country? So because I'm very passionate, I've said to you so many times that I'm passionate about social issues. <laughs> <laughs> we can tell. It was curious as a mom, obviously my children, and look, I don't even have electronic security. I literally am at the mercy of God for my protection. I've got two beautiful dogs and that's as much as it goes. And, but as a mom, I was curious to know during lockdown as in April, 2020, until March 2021, how many teenagers had fallen pregnant because of the lockdown or during, just that because of during lockdown? So I asked this question to health. And before I respond to the outcome, I want to say this as an opening statement is that I was shocked and I had more questions than what I had before when I responded, when I got the responses from the MEC of Health in the province. And she literally indicated to me in her written response that over 23,000 girl children had fallen pregnant during that period. It's one year lockdown. Of those, between 10 and 14, and I don't think there's a 10-year-old who goes you and I are adults. We probably think, mm, I'm going to make love to my partner, right? But I don't think there's a 10-year-old who thinks I'm going to have sex. No. Between 10 and 14, 924. Think of a 10-year-old who's pregnant. 10 and 14 years of age had fallen pregnant during that time. Of those children between 10 and 18, just under 3,000 had had abortions. Wow. I've got boy children, so I probably will never be in the shoes of a mother who has to deal with a 10-year-old who is pregnant. And one of them, I want to give you two incidents where I was personally called when I say to you, I can work from a township, informal, in a shack to a mansion. I went to meet a family where the brother and the sister had sex with each other during lockdown when mom went to work. And the daughter ended up pregnant, 13 years old. The brother was 15. Can you imagine what that mother must go through? She's a single mother like me. Then I have another incident where the mother has been in an abusive relationship with the husband, but because he's the financial provider, he's now moved on to sleeping with the daughter. 
who's about 15, she's now pregnant from her biological father. How do you fix this? This is an evil of note. How do you, what is this? Is this, is this education? Is this, what is this? How do you even begin to fix this? Danny, this is a multifaceted approach. We don't know what's happening in your home, but at the same time, when you, when you unpack what happened during lockdown, there was no sports. There was no drum majorettes in our townships. There was no choir. There was no drama. All those extramural activities that keep children busy. Yeah. Children need to be kept. And you see there's an additional problem because the departments are not working with each other. Mm. You see this as a problem that if we can get departments to work together, you also need civil society to come on board. We might nullify the role of religion, but they play crucial, crucial role in our societies. Whether it's churches or um, mosques or whatever religion one chooses to pursue, there is social assistance in those spaces. Then you need other civil society to come on board, like Love Life. Where is the child welfare number that people used to know that, oh, 800 something, something, something appropriate manner you know you talk about love life my mom always jokes that I'm part of the love life generation because I have always been so monogamous and so careful and it's it's 100% because of the billboards those billboards impacted me greatly when I was younger every and I remember it I can see it everyone he slept with is sleeping with you and I will never Precisely. forget that billboard. I'm 36 Rafilwe, and I still think of it today. I'm not single anymore, but when I was, I was. Yes. It it had it it made an impact. But you're right. Where are the rulers? Where is that number? Where is that number now? So where do these children turn to? Valid. And some of it, remember, is also teenagers that have been impregnated by teachers. This is a very so you're telling me that there are now 23,000 minus the 900 20 what 21,000 let's say 22,000 new babies that have been born to essentially children in the lockdown is is, yes. is essentially what you're telling me maybe more now because that was until March children so now you and I are in September so potentially we could have another 10,000 that have been born in addition to the 23,000. So we might be said if that statistics continues on the same trajectory, we could say today in September, we're now sitting with 33,000 babies, having babies. Yeah. Okay. So what can we as community do? Because obviously we're still in lockdowns. There's still no sports. There's still no extramurals. So what are we doing within our community? Neighbors, uh, elders in the community. What are we looking for? How are we helping? Talk to your children. We need to talk to our children. I want to relay an incident. I live in Norcom Park. I think about a month ago, the children, I don't know what happened. But the children had stoned vehicles passing the school and had missed a delivery um, motorbike driver. My community here got together. There's one gentleman who is a board member of a foundation called Field Band. Remember the Field Bands where they mm. play in the stadiums? And we mobilized Field Band to go to the school because what they do is they, they actually change children's behavior through music but they also have peer 
talking so their peers are taught to understand sexual education drug education because don't forget there's also drugs ravaging our communities mm. and what they do is through music they teach children to be into productive life than to get involved in sex too early or getting into drugs because they've got a positive destruction in the form of music yeah every day after school there's a practice every day after school there's peer discussions on and it's better when a teenager who's been taught correctly or 21 year old who's close in age is educating sex than you and me they're going to see and say what's this gogo doing here you know and they see me and i am a mom now i forgot because the time i used to think i was young <laughs> the reality is i am a mom if i talk to 17 year olds they're going to think i'm lecturing yeah but when somebody of age who has been taught to be a peer educator speaks to them it's it's far more sexy than you and i do it so they do peer education and they do group work with peers and we implemented that last week we launched it at nokampak high to try and get those children into music through field bank it's a six week trial that they're running and i think we need to have more field bands and i'm using it just as an example of how community and an ngo and a school got together to help these kids and you know when we were launching that um program in the school one of the things that stuck up for me in my mind is a lot of children have lost parents due to covid yes so sometimes children don't know even teenagers they don't know how to speak about i'm hurting and instead of coming out they actually go out and bully others they or act do out. yes they act out that's the right term and i think those are the things that fold point can help be going acted out by playing music i remember my dad used to say to me because i'm a tennis player serve the best ace shot and take out your frustrations <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> so you will actually find that these children maybe through this peer over time talking to peer educators they start unpacking the pain of losing a mother and a father sometimes one has lost a mother sometimes a father sometimes both and nobody's hearing their pain because the pain is not written on your face. Yeah. He still has to man up or girl up and go to school and you know get his metric. Probably some other family member from maybe a, a relative has stepped up to the plate but the child's pain nobody's thought about counseling. We don't go to counseling in this country. We actually shun counseling. Yes. And in black communities it's even, even worse. worse. A black man will say to you, I don't need to go for counseling. I'm not mad because counseling is associated with mad, being yeah. mental. Yeah. But you know you can win a million rand and you still need to go counseling because you've changed your, your disposition mentally. So we need to understand the positive side of counseling as a country. Mm. And a lot of these children need to be held and guided not just by the school it takes a village to raise nice. a child and that I'm, i go back to that phrase i'm not that i don't have the solutions i'm merely talking about certain things that maybe can be implemented to to start hmm. rufoe speaking about the children you brought up something that i wanted to talk to you about as well the girl children who might be watching or listening to this who didn't come from a position of privilege like you did where you had a, a pretty good foundation to start your career off i wanted to maybe talk to you about those girl children who see you as a role model and and i'm so grateful that they have role models that they see themselves in right because growing up when we were growing up there were only white women role models you i mean they weren't even plasters for other skin colors now we're opening the world is opening up and more things are becoming available to everybody and Great. it's a beautiful space to be but i speak to a lot of people who go education is important education is important and i think we forget to focus on the fact that education even at a foundation level 
even at a township school that education is important and you can go from a township school to university and there are ways that you can do that there are ways that you can become whatever it is you want to be so if you're sitting watching refillway now or listening to refillway and you are in Fusaris, you're in tembisa you're in davidson and you're thinking but how do i take the education that i've heard is not great and go into a university to become a refillway how do I, I'm not even going to try because it's never going to happen and we give up. So I, wanted, um, I want you to maybe talk to that girl child about the importance of the education that they have. That do what you have with what you, do what you can with what you have right now. And the mm -hmm. rest is going to take care of itself. Jenny, my, my role model in this regard is my mom. My mom was born to a minor. And my mom... I remember two years ago, we went to bury my cousin, her sister's son. And I'd known my mom comes from abject poverty. When I mean abject poverty, I'm talking people who grew up in a grass hut and that was the family home. One room for everybody. And um, my mom comes from that. She's a doctor today, but I want to tell you how she got to her journey of becoming Dr. Nseche today. My mom said to me, Two years ago driving home because i was delegated to drive her around by my brothers and they were doing it's all the all the hard work of whether it's slaughtering cows or whatever that needed to be done for this particular funeral and we drove a, a four-hour trip to where she comes from and she said to me you know i've never told you this do you know that when i went to school your grandfather passed away and I've known that um, when she was going from between high primary to high school and my grandmother was a subsistence farmer. That's somebody who just grows a little bit of cabbages outside the yard, maybe sells one or two to a neighbor, but it's not a full-fledged farm. She was illiterate, my granny, but she understood something about education and knew this girl needed to get an education. And my mom was a middle girl because her older sister had been married around 16, 17 because of that generation. But my mom didn't care for this marriage. She wanted this education. She wanted to be a doctor, even as young as she was. And she said to me, do you know that sometimes I would walk to school and when other kids were eating oranges, I'd pick up the peels and eat them. So my stomach is not grumbling when I get to school. Because an empty stomach cannot absorb an education. And that's why I say I speak from a point of privilege because I have had to ride on my parents' hardships or my mom's hardship. And I, that taught me to say, if that girl who used to eat pills from other kids allowed herself to go to school, even with probably that Bantu education, from probably a village of, that nobody knew about in a mud hut, sleeping on a straw mat. Today's Dr. Nseche, don't tell me it can't be done. And that's what motivated me. Like I was not an, I was not the cum laude student. I was not the distinction student, but I made sure I passed every single grade. I never gave my dad a hard time I literally was just like, yes, I need to pass. I need to get good grades. I need to get, I was into tennis and all of that. But every time I thought of my mom's upbringing and poverty, because we've always known where my grandmother, where my grandmother stays. She died when I was six years old. But knowing that background and my mom says, I never want you to return to poverty. That was a motivation for me to say, you can think that education is broken, but it's a slice of bread. And I would take it on. And my mom took it on. And when she got to matric, she didn't get an opportunity to be a doctor immediately. Danny. She actually got an, she then enrolled in nursing because there was yeah. no opportunity to go into medicine. But nursing was close to medicine. And even when she was a nurse, remember back in the day, nurses used to get a stipend. Yes. And that little bit of money, it was how she raised her baby sisters and sent money home for her mother to live on. And studied further. And continued to study further. It can be done. So, 
I want to say to those little girls to think of my mom, Dr. Matato Amelia Nseche, and say, if Amelia or Matato, depending on who, what language you speak and you're comfortable pronouncing, can come out of eating other children's orange peels and today be known as, I mean, she wasn't the doctor for very long. This is a woman who left six kids and went to Cuba to study, but on her tombstone, nobody's going to write Matato. They're going to write Dr. Matato Nteche. So for those girls who are listening and watching and say, I'm in a shack, I've got this terrible education, sometimes I don't have food. The goal of who you want to be tomorrow must keep the fire burning for you to achieve that goal. Somehow you put it out into the world, as I said at the beginning, Hmm. and the stuff will come to find you. You go find a teacher and say, I don't have sanitary pads. The teacher will link you with a social worker. Hopefully a plan will come through. I don't have food in my house. They'll link you up with social development. Maybe you'll get it granted. Even if it's 450, I know it's a tiny amount of money, but you can buy 10 kg of milli meal, um, some paraffin, a, a, a head of cabbage and something, and at least know you have food in your stomach every night. And the, the schools at least also provide school nutrition programs. So Monday to Friday, there's a meal at school. I know you and I have three meals, but there's a meal at school. Yeah. So I think lessons is not necessarily your own experiences. Look at experiences of those close to you and learn from them. Mm. Your mom has inspired me and I can see why you are the woman that you are today. She's an incredible human being and I would love to hear her stories, but we're running out of time. So I have one more question for you. And I'm also going to be super duper honest when I ask it because I'm not here about being inauthentic. I've never voted. I am part of the millennials that believe that our votes (laughs) don't mean anything. My mother is a card carrying activist and she has been fighting and politics for forever and ever and ever and so i was always like well sandy will sandy will do it sandy will change the world and i've always left it in the hands of other people now i know that i'm not the only one because obviously we move in groups of people and we are all very similar in age all women who have not voted now you are a woman who i think we would love to have in power so what is your message to those women out there like myself who have never used our position of privilege to change anything because we don't believe we have the power. What is your message to us? I've got three messages for you on why you should vote. For all races to vote, blood was shed in this country. If you look at what Ekurleni looks like today, it's a bankrupt municipality. Mm. If you believe in me and what I believe in, my vision of black excellence, wanting to turn around this municipality to a functioning municipality, imagine this. On the 2nd of November, the votes are counted and I lose out on becoming the mayor of Ekroleni by one vote and you didn't vote. How are you going to feel? Valid, yeah. Remember I said to you, I won a award by 59 votes. Yeah. Imagine those 59 Dannys did not go out and vote. So indirectly, by not voting, you have re-voted the ANC back into this municipality. And as we speak today, Danny, Ekuruleni is bankrupt. We need somebody who understands how to govern. And I will tell you, I've just finished my master's in policy development and practice. Yes, I'm a single mom who stays in backpackers. I was just going to say, I don't understand (laughs) how you do this. Yes, I stayed in a backpacker in Cape Town because that's all I could afford, even as a politician. Because I wanted to do it through UCT. I couldn't afford to spend 1,400 per night for 14 days. So I stayed in a backpacker because of my kids. I want to change this new truth. 
because I want other children not to go through what I have, what my mom went through. Yeah. And our one vote, our one vote really does count. Really, really does count. It does. (laughs) You're making me emotional. I'm sorry. You're making me emotional and I'm trying not to cry because I have another interview and my makeup's (laughs) I'm actually laughing. I've never cried on TV. I'm I'm generally strong, but, but the truth of the matter is if we want to change this country, I'm tired of people looting. We have to get to a point where we understand that the DA might have its faults and we have plenty of them. But the reality of governing well and governing for the people of the top 20 best run municipalities in South Africa, they're ran by the DA. Trust me, the Democratic Alliance leadership would never let me get into govern and government and govern badly because we are monitored and we have performance assessments. Even now, in what I do as an MPL, every six months I go through a performance assessment. If I take over Ekurileni and govern badly, trust me, it's not only the citizens that will suffer, it's also my reputation and my own assessment that will say to the people you're not worthy of being a man that you will remove me before you even remove me and we've done that because i've been in the leadership of the democratic alliance i've had to be in that horrible position of saying sorry danny you're not doing a very good job here we need you to step down we've given you notice we've told you to improve what you need to do for the people and you haven't done it you're letting the brand down so if that's any motivation to people if you've never voted before today more than ever i think i have the educational experience the life experience the political experience in terms of working across council and as a legislature to actually and the backing of the democratic alliance experience to turn around this municipality it's not going to be an overnight job though so people mustn't think that the next day <laughs> the truck will remove the rubbish. No, Danny. Maybe in three months you'll still be running after you're really being bad. <laughs> Hopefully within the three within the within six months you'll start feeling a DA difference with the basics. Because we start with the basics before we get into the complicated stuff. <laughs> and that's all I'm, I'm asking for. You know what? I I genuinely love you as a human and I I genuinely am rooting for you. I you you are real and vulnerable and emotional and you're not afraid to show it and I think that that is exactly the kind of politician that we need in this country and I I'm wishing you the absolute best. I really, really am. Rafilwe, for those of us that have just met you, that are watching and they love you and they're crying along with both of us, where can they where can they follow your journey and um, where can they find out more about you and follow the DA and, and all of the things? I have a Twitter account, at Rafilwe There's um, a YouTube and a TikTok page, Rafilwe um, Nteche for Mayor, and I'm on Facebook as Rafilwe Nteche. And I welcome anybody on the journey with me. Rafilwe, thank you so much for your time. You have inspired me, made me emotional. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I've never been emotional about any kind of political interview I've ever done before. So, who am I first? <laughs> sorry, Danny. No, please never apologize. You know what? When you feel passionate about something and, and you that passion... Um, bleeds from you into everything that you do and every word that you say and it's 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 a beautiful thing that i feel that too and that's so authentic and it's so genuine and i meant every word that i said so thank you very much for your time and i hope thank you for having me on i really appreciate this hour i wish it was longer but you got to come back when you are mayor okay i definitely will promise awesome thank you so much say hello to your mom and thank her for continuing to vote same i i pray and i will send you selfies 
um, with her and I on the line together this time. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Rafua, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, Denny. Remember, you can catch the full video on xotv.me and you can meet us in kind of real life. Thanks to DJ Chuck for the music. You can catch him at www.chucksprosound.co.za. New episodes on Jackpot and XOTV every Monday. Love you.